normally the beginning of uh, the teachings of the Buddha, which also have to do with uh, the kinds of things and events that happen at a Wat or a temple, let us say, uh, at the start of or the beginning of the start of a retreat. Buddhism is generally taught as sila, samati, panya. This is the basic way of teaching children. And that the reason that that's taught first is because uh, it's naturally assumed that children have no wisdom. And that for Westerners doing a retreat, uh, the intention there is to set an environment so that there's nothing to do for the student but look at the mind. And so with them also, they start with sila. Now, sila has actually two different definitions. One is a set of rules, rites, rituals, precepts, or you can think of it as wisdom, good ideas, the way things uh, would be better off if they were done this way. And so this is the way that Buddhism is normally taught, with sila samati panya, assuming that the person has no wisdom at all. And that is how it's been taught traditionally I don't know how many centuries, but it's certainly that way in Thailand. Um, and it, it seems like that a version of that is what has become Western Buddhism. But um, according to Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa, he says, and, and in fact, uh, starting in Thailand in the 1930s, that it was time to teach the actual teachings of the Buddha, not an introductory version of it. And so, uh, this is the supramundane dhamma. And that the supramundane dhamma is, let us call it, upside down to everything else. So in the sense of with our culture, without any culture at all, there would be chaos and bedlam. And so humanity has set upon itself a set of rules or the way that things are, should be done all the way down to which side of the road you're supposed to be driving on. Everything is down with a set of rules, and the way that those rules are enforced is either with puni punishment and enforcement, or it's left up to magic. The boogeyman will get you if you don't do what you're told to do. And this is the basis of our society, and it has been that way all along. And that that's primarily the lower class Thai culture. 
But starting in the 1930s, Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa had the idea that it's time to let the, um, the noble Dhamma, the super mundane Dhamma, out into the public. And so he started giving public talks and promptly got into a lot of trouble in some quarters. Because there are people who will cling strongly to magical beliefs. They will hold and they will hold and hold to those magical beliefs as if they were absolute true. And in fact, here's something that you can think about. And that is, is that when two people are in an argument, both of them are not quite sure. If someone really has the facts, like, for instance, a college professor who knows the history, and two guys are arguing with, some, with each other over what happened in a particular war, and this uh, historian knows for a fact what happened in that particular war. He doesn't want to argue with these guys or try to convince them. He says, well, here's the facts. You go look it up. I'm not interested in arguing with you. So it's only those who have beliefs and think that they know the, the truth. Down deep inside, they want to convince somebody else so that if everybody believes it, then it must be true, and I was right after all. We don't like to be wrong. And so there were those who heard Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa, and they did not like at all what he had to say. And so they brought him up on charges. Inside of the Sangha, there is a thing called the Sangha de Sessa, and that's one of the really heavy-duty uh, issues because the word Sangha de Sessa means the breaking or the putting together of the Sangha, the breaking of the Sangha. And so a Sangha de Sessa is held to put the Sangha back together again. And that on certain times, at certain places, a Sangha de Sessa is needed and necessary. One of the places where a Sangha de Sessa is necessary is for this kind of trial, and the other one would be when a uh, temple is being ordained. The boat is established, the Sema stones are laid, and all of that's done with ceremonies done with 20 monks or more. So Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa got called up on charges, and the entire jury as, as, is also the judges, and it's a panel of 20 monks. This was a very high-class one, and he had some of the highest-class, longest-term, best-known monks on this panel. And what happened in the outcome of this was... Um, not the outcome, but a process was a literature search in the Pali and in the Thai language to come up to see whether what Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa said was actually the teaching of the Buddha, which half the panel agreed, and the other half of the panel didn't agree and thought that they knew the suttas. As it came out with that uh, uh, verification process, the actual way that some of the translations are done was modified. But that Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa not, had several things happened with that. One was that he was completely exonerated. Well, not really completely. In fact, the verdict was is that he was teaching correctly to the wrong people. 
Okay. Uh-huh. Talking about secret societies and all of that. <laughs> Teaching the right Dhamma to the wrong people. But he also made an extraordinary friend in this. And that extraordinary friend was Bhikkhu Buddha Now, Bhikkhu Buddha was at that time the Samdet Sangharaj, the head monk of Thailand. You can call him kind of like the prime minister, not the king, even though he's known as Sangharaj, the king of the, uh, the Sangha. But it is more of a title uh, bestowed and that his teacher was, had a very famous story also in the sense that he was a king. He was, uh, he was born from uh, one of Mongoot's children. He was born in 1860 and his elder brother Chula Longhorn then became uh, the, the king about eight years later and then eventually, uh, this Ouija that I'm talking about became very active in the Sangha. He was a monk for many, many years and did many reforms, very good things. And he had also royal backing, which means that now the royal family has deep ties into the Sangha. That's actually the, the king that just died uh, two, two, three years ago also was well-respected because he had been a monk. And to now the present king, I don't know what his history is, but he's not very well-respected as well as his, his father was, closer to the Sangha. Um, he was more military. So, um, Buddha Gosajarn's teacher was probably because of the power within the Sangha of having royal family connections, we can also see that, wait a minute, this is partly why the aristocracy of Thailand is such a big fan of Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa, the higher class people. And that in one of the series of talks that Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa gave was to the judiciary, like the Justice Department in the U.S., Okay, and that uh, this was a major hall. He gave a series of 12 talks and all of the judges, all of the professors in the law school and all the student lawyers were in this talk with Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa. Big, big hall. We uh, it's in Thai, it's recorded, it's, there's a book on it and it's actually still in process of being translated into English. Okay, so this was the kind of experience that Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa had. He had connections with the royal family. In fact, the king of Thailand had been to, uh, to Wat Suan Mok to personally ordain a well that was dug so that uh, uh, Wat Suan Mok didn't have to re uh, rely upon large catchments of rainwater, which is how it was when I got there until we got a pump. And so... Uh, this connection with Bhikkhu Buddha Dosajarn and uh, uh, Raja uh, Wheel, this is the kind of background that Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa had with the connections. Now, when I had first gotten to, to Wat Suan Mok, my idea was is that Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa was all out there, hung out to dry all by himself. I did not realize that he had such enormous backing 
And that one of the things that we could see with that was every weekend, two or three buses would come loaded down with uh, university students from um, uh, Thomasot University, which was what they've got a big, they still have it going, a Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa Club. And it's closely associated with the law school there. So it's the aristocracy that uh, to where the, 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 the average farmer, the Joe Blow, they don't know so much about Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa, but he still has millions of followers. And part of the outcome of that with uh, my connection with him and, and now uh, as well as in Achan Po, Achan Po has asked me to teach the Noble Dhamma. To not teach ordinary Dhamma. We don't start at the beginning the way that we start with kids. We start at a, uh, let us say, a plateau way up on the, the side of a mountain. This is where we start. This is the starting point. And that starting point then is the teachings of the Buddha in one of the suttas, the Buddha says specifically, both formally and now, I teach only one thing. He only teaches one thing. Well, that's good news. If there's only one thing to learn, then we got it going. Only one thing. And what is that? Dukkha, Dukkha Naroda. Now, Western Buddhism has a different version of that. The, the Western version is Dukkha, Dukkha, look at the Dukkha, meditate on Dukkha, go really deep into the Dukkha, watch what's going on and understand Dukkha to its fullest, and someday you will be happy. Okay. But, but that's not the teaching of the Buddha. The Buddha is teaching is Dukkha in the sense if you see it, you can step out of the way. So I give you the analogy of the cow pie. You've probably been around cow pies. You ever been around cows? All right. I've never heard the term a cow pie before, but I'm assuming it's. Uh... <laughs> well, that's what they use to cook fuel, uh, to use as uh, cooking fuel in uh, India. Oh, really? Okay. We also use them because it's slow burning. I've got cow pie in my hand right here, though this is much more of a manufactured version of it. It's actually cow dung. Cow, okay, yes. Okay. I understand, continue. All right. Nobody that I know of intentionally goes around stepping in cow pies. Is that true? That is true, yes. Not real cow pies on the ground, but mental cow pies, people tread in it all the time because they're not watching where they're going. Because they, they do not have the wisdom to see it, yes. Well, they're not looking. Yes. If they, if they looked, they would see it, and then they would have the wisdom, oh, I shouldn't be stepping in that. Yes. So this is the major point about the teaching of the Buddha is, is that you are to avoid that cow pie right now, not 
get the attitude that someday I'll stop uh, uh, tromping in them. We don't want to step on this one right here, right now. That's all you have to worry about. The one That's that all we have is right here, right now. Let's not be stepping in cow pies. Okay, understood. Okay, now we can understand that cow pies are very much like unwholesome thoughts. And that once you step in it, you got it all over you. Okay. All right. So this Dukkha Dukkha Naroda is a very, very simple teaching, but it also is loaded down with inferences. And an example of that is right before that statement in the sutta, uh, it's going over a point that the Buddha was accused of. He was accused of teaching that upon the breakup and death of an ordinary body, the human body, the being is annihilated. This is called annihilationism. He was accused of being annihilationist. What, what, what being? When you say being, what are they referring That's to? That's exactly right. Okay, that's the right question here. Because, in fact, if at the breakup of the body, the being is not annihilated, then we can call this one of two things. One, that is eternalism. Or two, it's semi-eternalism. Which means that either this being does not die upon the death and breakup of the body, but it continues on and on and on after that for ever so long, and then plus a little bit more, then you multiply that by a million, and that's eternal. Or there's like the idea that someday something will happen way off in the distant future, and then things will come to an end. Okay? And then there's another belief, and that no other belief would be nihilism in the sense of there is nothing. And that the Buddha calls this kind of thinking complete wrong view. That this is the kind of view that a drive-by shooter would have, and you can also see that this is the very, very deepest roots of our civilization. It was a dog-eat-dog -dog world, except that it was humans eating humans. And then we went from human sacrifice to animal sacrifice, and we're kind of changing over time as we begin to build up more rules. But chaos would it be there if people said there is nothing, and I can go and do as my heart desires anything that I want to do. If I don't like you, I just kill you. Every warlord has a very short life because his lieutenants will kill him. Any chance. The only uh, right is might. Mm. No higher thing. This is nihilism because there's no attribution. And so something came into play, and that was the idea of eternalism, is, is that you will eventually get caught and will have to pay for your bad deeds. And so this became a common belief, and in fact, our society has been built upon it. 
Our society is built upon magical belief that if you do what you're told to do, you'll get some future reward. Good action gives good results. And if you go around breaking the rules I set for you, I and somebody else is going to beat the tar out of you. Okay, that is you do bad actions and you're going to get bad results. And this is the law of karma. And when you extend that law of karma so that things are always going to be so that if you did a really rotten thing, you'll eventually get punished for it, even if the karma machine has to dig you up just to kick your ass. <laughs> and this is the teaching of eternalism. And the Buddha didn't teach any of these. He did not teach eternalism. He did not teach annihilationism. He did not teach nihilism. He taught something else. Anichavata-sankara. Everything is temporary and everything is uh, dependently arising. So sometimes you feel like a nut and sometimes you don't. Sometimes you're selfish and sometimes you're not. There's not always a self. There's not always a being. But sometimes there is based upon conditions. And when so, those conditions go away, the self goes away. Yes, there isn't any enduring self or being from one moment to the next. Even though all, so all phenomena, are, their origination is dependent upon another. However, they rise and fall completely by themselves. Well, when a fire runs out of fuel, it will go out. Is that not true? That's correct. As so long as that fuel, that fire has fuel, it may continue to burn. And it's unlikely to go out. So long as the forest has trees to burn, the forest fire will continue. It's only when it runs out of fuel will it stop. Okay. Okay. And the Buddha used that example of fire. In the sense of consciousness, in the sense of that what, when we use the word consciousness, we generally are referring to that which experiences this and that and the other thing, which is often referred to as a self. For instance, Christianity believes that it's the consciousness that is the soul that experiences heaven. Because why would a soul go to heaven and not even know it was there? Or why would a soul go to hell unless it knew it was there without some consciousness of being in hell or in hell? So, so the issue here is that the word consciousness is used in many different ways in many different circles. Sure is. So before we continue, we need to define what we mean by consciousness first. All right. Well, I will give you two different definitions because there are generally two different definitions of consciousness. I only want your defini the definition we're going to use here. No, we need to understand both definitions. Okay. Okay. There is the first kind of consciousness we will call sense consciousness. When yes. the eye sees an object, there is sight. When a sound hears uh, music, or when, when the air has vibrations that touch the ear, that sound vibration becomes hearing. 
when the chilies and the salt and the, all of the spices are in the food and you it doesn't mean anything until you put the food in your mouth and then you have the sensation of taste all right this is consciousness taste consciousness touch consciousness bodily awareness consciousness it is called proprioceptic sensation okay uh, and there is also consciousness of our thoughts so there is thinking consciousness also there's are six kinds so that's one kind of consciousness the other kind of consciousness is the result of human conflagrations of the mind okay proliferations of the mind let me give you an example of that in plain english i see a tree takes very little processing mostly we're talking about i see the tree seeing and then i can say i see what you mean that's a different kind of consciousness that is the result of processing okay. you haven't reached that result yet you're still processing right now at this very instant trying to figure it out and it will take a while because actually uh talking about consciousness is a side issue but it's worthwhile talking about in the sense that consciousness both kinds are temporary yes so when you close your eyes you do not have side consciousness when you go to sleep you lose all sense consciousness when you're confused you have no uh internal consciousness that in the pali is called salayatana and salayatana is actually just the internal representation of the atana or the senses but we have to go through a processing time first and that processing that we do is called perception and in the pali it's named nama rupa it's so amazing that you you're saying all this because this is what um so today i sat with this right i sat with the aggregates and i was discussing with my friend <clears throat> and we came we came to this here so a sense object meets a physical object both which are rupa an impression is created. Uh, perception. Who are happens. you looking at? Is your friend there with you? Oh no, no, this is this is what I. So basically, I've taken the aggregates, and I have I've been looking at the aggregates, and I've been writing down what seems to me how how the five aggregates weave together to form form experience. So I've gone from rupa to um, perception, and then vedana. Then re reaction volition happens. Vedana, uh, not Vedana. Sorry, uh, how do you say? V Vedana. Vedana. Uh, Which then is reaction. But you were talking about consciousness. Feeling tone. So this okay. is the, this is. So I spent a long time redefining words. So feelings in English language means a lot of things, but here it seems to be feeling tone, the tone of uh, happy, sad, neutral. That seems to not, color experience. Not neutral. Um, That's translated into English that way absolutely incorrectly. What's the middle one? Ignorance. In the Pali, it says, A dukkha, a sukha vedana. 
or sometimes it's stated as sukadukavekna. Now, what we're actually meaning is that it's either both or it's confused. We don't know which. Do we like it or we don't like it? And we become confused. Ah, uh, yes. Okay. It's not neutral. Neutral feelings don't impact us. Neutral feelings don't mean anything. Yes. Neutral feelings would just be a feeling that is so weak that it doesn't even register. Yes, that's true. Actually, this answers the question as to why that neutral feeling isn't equal to equanimity. Because that's what I had noticed. It is not. In it's fact, not. it is dukkha itself. It is confusion. Yes. It yes. is doubt. It gives rise to the primary emotion of fear. Yes. If I like it, I want it. That leads to greed. I don't like it and won't get rid of it. That leads to ill will. That confused feeling leads to doubt, worry, ignorance, making up beliefs, delusions, and magic building. Magic building is based upon this feeling, this third kind. Yeah. This is my understanding of my experience, right? Uh, that I, I just sent to you there. Okay. Well, I didn't read it. It didn't stay up too long, and it was a whole lot of words. You don't have to do that. We could just, you can watch me on, at the camera, and we'll be fine. Okay. Okay. We can be here now. So, these kind of consciousness, one is preliminary in the sense that we take in sense. Number two is, is that we process it internally, and then we come up with a result that we could call, I realize that. It's a realization, except that nothing is realized, not really. If I realize that that's a tree, it's not that I now have a tree growing out of my head. I've mentalized it. I've taken it in and created something on the inside that I think is real. But yet the amount of information that could be obtained hasn't been obtained. An example of that is a guy walks into the supermarket and sees a pretty checkout girl and he walks out of the store thinking about her and all he's got is that little bit of a snapshot of an image that he's got in his mind and that's what he falls in love with. And he does not understand that she was raised by an alcoholic father, that she's had three alcoholic boyfriends and her mother killed one of them. And she's got two kids that are absolutely going to tear his heart out if he comes close to their mom. He doesn't have any of that. He doesn't know the reality of the situation at all. Yeah. All he has is this mental idea that was quickly formed because why he liked it. He liked what he saw. And so that was what he saw was he liked it. And so he added to it his own internal story. That yep. is the second kind of consciousness. So the first kind of consciousness is the ones that you spoke about that 
come from sense, the six, the six sense, sense thoughts. Mm -hmm. so sense consciousness, so the five senses and thought. I know uh, uh, Buddhism regards thoughts as a sense, almost. Uh, well, as if you're thinking that people are having thoughts and they never, never know it. Or do they sense that they have thoughts? Okay. Uh, Descartes uh, said, I uh, think, hey. therefore I am. How would he know that he'd think if he didn't <laughs> sense that he could think? Okay, I, I point taken. Okay, thoughts is, uh, thoughts is sense. <laughs> okay, uh, all right. So the first type of consciousness is sense consciousness. The second type of consciousness, I, I don't quite understand. I understand that this mental model that people create on, on it, around a given object. Could you re-explain the second consciousness again, please? Yes, it is processed data. We take the original thing in, but if you took everything in as absolutely brand new, then you wouldn't have a clue about it being a tree. No, we process it, and how we process it is we take stuff out of our past. We've got a, an immense database of our own past, and that database is all the stuff that we've collected together over the years. Okay. This is in Nepali. It's called Sankara. That's, that's what I was going to ask you, because this here, Sankara, sounds like the, the cutting up and the labeling and the conceptualizing and the identification of Stop the mind. Stop cutting it up and think of it as a sewer that you don't want anything to do with. But this is what the mind does, is it not? It, it has to take experience. It does pull stuff out of its sewer and tries to make sense out of it. That's why we keep eating trash. Is that we don't live in the present moment, we live in the past. Why? Is because when we're processing our data, we don't process it with current information, we process it with old past information. Okay. So, Sankara, I thought Sankara is a reaction, volition, uh, intent. I know, that's why I'm teaching you the Noble Dhamma is because you have been intentionally con been confused. So Sankara is not volition? No, not at all, nor is it choice at all. In fact, it's the very thing that we don't have any choice over until we take make the choice of stop using it. But it is volition in the sense of all of your old grudges keep getting brought back up and that's your volition. Uh, yeah, it's it's the it's past. It seems that's where karma comes from. The past conditioning. That is karma. This is very interesting. Uh, continue. You have a choice as to how you're going to process based upon either newer information or old information. But after you do the processing, you've come up with now your own idea of what was actual reality in, in the beginning. And a reality you didn't understand, but by making sense of it, you've modified it okay. to make it fit into your past. Uh, into your model of reality. Into your model of reality that comes out of your past. Yes. Okay, understood. That is the second kind of consciousness. And that is the consciousness that impacts us.
That's the salayatana that gives rise to pasa or contact. That's what is what hits us. Not original consciousness. The actual sense consciousness is just the um, uh, the grits for the mill, and all of that grinding was the perception, and that grinding wheel was dirty from the last time it was used. So you don't get just today's wheat. You get last week's wheat too. <laughs> this is a this is a beautiful uh, analogy uh, that that you're using here. Then, then uh, uh, where does vinyana come from then? Con actual, the actual consciousness aggregate. If there's only those two types, you mentioned... It, the, that is uh, vinya, which is sense consciousness. That's an aggregate of the mind. So the five aggregates are the same thing as the four foundations of mindfulness the satipatthana, which is the key ingredient in how anapanasati practice is wrapped around. And so you take this four foundations of mindfulness and you realize that, that one of them is just the mind's objects. Let's look at the process or the factors that go into manufacturing things. And that's when we look at it in the sense of taking that mind component, the chitta, and dividing it into three groups. So now that you have body and feeling, which is the same as in the uh, Satipatthana, but you have the mind in three aggregates. The mind in three aggregates is consciousness, perception, and Sankara. Volition. No, it's not volition. Not volition. Um... No, think of it as your garbage dump. The, the, Think the, of it as the dust in the bottom of your empty bag. A conditioning, like my conditioning. Right. My conditioning that leads to a sense of volition, but not volition itself. you're eating itself. off the floor is not the same as the food that went on the floor. Right, that's the Sankara. That's the things that get stuck to it from the past. All right. So you could think of that as your entire memory bank, which is enormous. Yeah. Yes. Okay, so with the body itself, that the body has three components. But in fact, we can talk about it in the sense that Sankara has three components. You have bodily sankara, the body that you have, including your eyeballs, your testicles, your toenails, everything, the ears, the whole show, is something coming out of the past, your body. And then you have another kind of consciousness, or excuse me, another kind of sankara, which is called verbal sankara. This is our concepts, this is the language we speak. This is the way that we speak the language, including the accents that we have, and this is also where all of the rites, rules, and rituals are stored as concepts. Okay? And then we have the third kind of sankara, which is the chitta sankara. Now, we're not talking about the frontal cortex, the mind, or the manu. We're talking about the chitta which is more of the hard emotional system that we have. 
that the uh, the manu would be more um, with with concepts and putting things together and whatnot would be verbal. When we're talking about Chitta Sankara, we're talking about the stored emotional ways that we feel. Yes, I understand that. Okay, we feel the way that we used to feel. Yes, yes, uh, definitely. We, we, we have feel the way we the get sure. used to feeling. We react to things the way that we usually react to things. Habitual emotional tendencies, basically. Exactly. That's Sankara. That's the heavy-duty stuff. Yes. Okay. Okay, so these are the three kinds of Sankara. So, all of that Sankara is based upon ignorance in the sense of when we're babies, when we are born, we are ignorant. We do not really know what's going on, but we start to go around collecting up a bunch of garbage, little trinkets that we like. When mama slaps me on the face because I was writing on the wall, I remember that. That we tend to remember the heavy stuff and we tend to forget all of the joys that we had. Why? Because if we're joyful all the time, there's nothing to remember. There's not worth it. Let's just have another good time and another one. And why worry about the past? But, oh, if you get slapped around, that's dangerous. We don't like that. So it we seems- want to kind of stay away from it. So we tend to remember all of the bad things that happened. And we tend to remember the feelings that we had. That's why the Sankara, the Chitta Sankara, is almost always associated with bad feelings. Yes. It seems to be an evolutionary uh, benefit. Absolutely, it's been a a revolutionary benefit. That's the part of the way that we got here. Yeah, because, you see, if you see see a stick on the ground and you assume it's a snake, you are better off than seeing a stick on the ground that is a snake and assuming it's a stick. Right, exactly. And remembering all the times that you've been bitten by... Uh, by a snake so you can avoid or been warned about snakes or been warned by snakes so you can avoid it in the future so so the mind tends to have this this negative bias this negative tendency to remember negative things because it wants to survive because false positives have kept us alive yes where false negatives got us eaten alive yes it's a survival machine it's just trying to survive Mm-hmm. And it it serves many people fairly well, yes, but it serves no one really well. Yeah, yeah. Serves no one really well. It so, works. You'll survive, but you might not be. <laughs> you might not be happy while you while you're alive. <laughs> so this is the idea then of dukkha: is that we carry around of a bunch of negative feelings and emotions and we bring them up and remember them as false positives which means that we feel bad in inappropriate times okay okay that we're not watching where we're going and we step in a cow pie would be the way in other words we think that there's snakes everywhere would be another one yeah. And if you were really afraid of snakes and there's snakes all over the place in your own mind, that's a pretty miserable existence. Yes, it is. So that's the thing. This is why the Sankara, the way that it is, 
But there's one thing that's important about it is, is that there is no self anywhere in this memory system. When you Except say self. Except the feelings of there being self. a self. But there is actually no self in there. That you are not the body. There is no self in the body itself. There is no self in the feelings that you're having in the moment. There's nothing there. There is no feeling of self. There's only a thought that there's a self. Well, okay. But a thought no, is kind of a feeling. Or excuse me, let's say this way. A feeling is a kind of a thought. An aha is a kind of a thought, a realization, a turning the light bulb on and seeing something and bang, and we got it. We don't even have to say a word. Many thoughts, if they were expressed in words, would be a thought of something like, oh. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> but when we take this sense consciousness, which has no self to it, yeah. and perception, the, the actual processing of data, and the sankara, we are uh, in with a body and feelings. We come up with something new. This is based upon general systems theory nowadays. The Buddha knew all about it, but didn't talk about it in words, but he certainly made application for it. And that is, is that the rule of general system theory is, is that the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. So part A plus part B plus part C plus part D plus part E does not equal just those some parts. It equals something new, something else. You, are you saying an something emergent? That, an example of that would be an automobile. You can have the automobile parts all over the yard. You got the engine over here and the wheels over there and the transmission here and the interior there and the body there and the chassis, all of those things. But when the car is put together, it adds something new. Transportation. It is not there with the original pieces. Understood. So, if there is no self in any of the five aggregates, that means that the self comes about as a function of these five aggregates in combination working together. So when the th situation is right, thoughts of self arise. Oh, okay. This is how this, this, the grip of a self is weakened by actually seeing this. Because saying to someone there is no self, it's not going to do something for them if they're being identified with this false mind-body unit their entire life. Um, so this is how. This is, it's through this, the direct seeing of how the self is created that you get to the knowledge of the illusion right. of self. So now you know what to go looking for. I'm giving you the map of the cave. Now all we have to do is get our cave diving equipment ready, and you can go caving. Okay. What is your cave diving equipment? Anapanasati. That's the Eightfold Noble Path and Anapanasati. Exactly. Okay. But that's the whole point about the cave. We need a map of that cave. And the map is, is that the five aggregates 
are actually part of the 12 steps of dependent origination. And when the consciousness, perception, and sankara operate together, they come up with a new image, a new kind of consciousness. And that new kind of consciousness has been perceived, or it is seeved, or it is conceived. This is uh, conception. Can you say the last sentence again? One more time, please. It, this is conception, okay? When the, when the body and the feeling, well, the body and the feelings are there, the capabilities of feelings are there, and there's some, some of which is stored as the sankara. In other words, the sankara is where we get how to feel about what we see. So when we see it and we process it with the sankara, we come up with a new kind of consciousness. That new kind of consciousness in the Pali is called Salayatana, and it is also referred to as Vinya, but a different kind of Vinya than sense percept or sense consciousness. And that we in English would call this conceiving. Or you can say, I get it. We say, gotcha. Okay, what did we get? That which was thrown, but we caught it. And we caught it with our catching mechanism. And part of the mechanism of catching is, is that we remember how to catch. So that's what we're talking about. So consciousness is seeing the ball coming and then catching the ball is the, is the second kind of consciousness. Okay. That catching the ball or getting it has past built into it. For instance, if the past says, I hate red balls, and this ball is being thrown as a red ball, even though I hate it, I'll try to catch it, and I'll probably miss it. So that's where the Sankara comes in, in um, bringing in the fact, do we catch it or not? Do we get it or not? And, And often what is thrown is not what we catch. We catch something else we make up something based upon our old memories our old past and that is then what impacts us now when i say impacts the pos- the poly word is pasa and is often translated as contact well, impressions pasa impressions well yes okay some impressions are real impressions another one is like, for instance, when somebody impresses you or when you're minting a coin, when that coin is minted, it is really impressed. Okay, uh, I can. it would be difficult to make the distinction between a real impression and a mental one. Therefore, you do not use the word impression. Right, impression is not the right word to use, but it, we can say that it contacts us. Okay, I understand. Okay. And... That this contact is weighted based upon uh, the Sankara, so that many times and oftentimes it's not just a touch contact, it's a shove. Mm. It's the driving force that gets us out of our chair to go do something. Okay, so 
that that takes a lot of force to get an old guy who likes his chair out of his chair. Something really hit us. Something impacted us. In this case, it was like an automobile impact. <laughs> As opposed to a light touch. So Pasa is often a very heavy touch. Not a light touch. But if it is a light touch, then it will probably give a light feeling. Okay. And if it has a heavy touch, then it will give a heavy feeling. So the intensity of the feeling has to do with how it contacts us. And generally, people are not awake. They're not here now. They are contacted, and they then uh, feel the way that they would feel, let us say, instinctually. Hmm. And then they start behaving in instinctually in the sense of the old way of doing it. And so normally when we like something or when we see something that uh, is pleasant to the eye or that we like it, that's when we begin to have the intention or the wanting. I want it. I like it. I want it. And also the next step, which is the very dangerous one, is I like it, I want it, it must be good. And here is where judgments of good and bad come in. Similarly, if we don't like something, like an itch, uh, or, uh, and we say I don't like it, that means I've got to scratch it. I've got to do something about it. I, I don't like it, that means I have to uh, want to remove it, right? And uh, that's an ignorant wanting. And if I don't like it and want to get rid of it, then hence I make the uh, final mistaken uh, conclusion that it's bad. Good and bad. Critical thinking is based upon feelings rather than upon wisdom. And then you add the other third one in there, the third kind of feeling, which is uh, not neutral at all. It's just not a feeling of I like it, and it's not a feeling of I don't like it. When it impacts us strong, it comes up with, the, with let us say, the words of what the hell? Is it ignorance? great confusion. Confusion. And sometimes great doubt, and sometimes great fear. The fear of the unknown. You've heard that in politicians. Better the devil you know than the devil you don't. The fear of the unknown is because of that. The, that the fact is, is that we humans don't like that feeling of confusion. We would rather have the feeling of not liking it. I would rather turn my feeling of confusion, I don't know who that guy is, into an enemy. I don't like him. Yeah. Yes, I'm more comfortable with that. I'm more comfortable with not liking than I am being confused. Yes, because you sh at least now you show you show of something. <laughs> mm-hmm. At least we think we do. Uh, we think we are. Right, exactly. And so this is all ignorant kind of thinking, and this is what leads into it. But this is actually much more of Paticca Samuppada 
then we were in, I was originally going to tell. I was going from the top down, and we immediately jumped to chapter nine. <laughs> uh, apologies, it kind of just veered in uh, in that direction. All right, but you can see where Paticca Samuppada fits in. It fits in with the fact that Dukkha Dukkha Naroda is the teaching of the Buddha. When we crack that open, we immediately get the Four Noble Truths. That Dukkha does, in fact, exist. And it's got a particular cause. And we're not always in it. And there's a method of getting out of it. An immediate method. And yet they call it a path. It's not a path. The Eightfold Noble Path is not a path. Why is it not a path? Because a path has a beginning point like here, and it's got a destination and a journey to take. And oftentimes you cannot even see the end of the path. And so you're out there walking on it. Guess what? The feeling of doubt and confusion and uh, this, this third feeling is the uh, result for that, calling it a path. A much better thing to say is the Eightfold Noble Method of coming out of Dukkha right now. Coming out of Dukkha right now, that's the whole point to go from that first noble truth to see the second noble truth, jump into the third noble booth and take a third noble truth and take a bath. To be happy immediately, to get into that third noble truth right now. It is not some kind of enlightenment that you've got to spend years and years on some hillside or a mountain or something. That's the Western idea. I guess that's because they have a, a bunch of failures as um, heroes. And they assume that since their hero has failed up to this point, then it must be a very heavy-duty journey. If even my hero hasn't gotten there yet. It's the entire idea of this long-bearded man sitting at the top of the mountain for 40 years meditating mm -hmm. the people. That lead people to think that. Uh-huh. That's right. Uh, this has all been very interesting. I've got to leave um, soon, but thank you so much for, for this talk. Well, we just got started, so we'll go back and start again when you're here, and we can go on to all kinds of things, whatever you like. Um, I, I'll let you drive, I think. I think uh, we better serve when you drive the conversation. Um, you have more experience, and I, I tend to get lost in in very attractive concepts and words. Um, mm -hmm. you, have, you seem to have more clarity in pointing me in towards, towards what's ac actually important. So, I will thank Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa for that. And he and I together will thank the Buddha for that. <laughs> yes. Um, okay, thank you so much. I will message you soon, uh, and we'll, we'll we'll have another discussion. But thank you so much for taking the time. To yes, let's let's do it again. Let's start at the beginning again. Sure. Take care.